Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This time on Vet Story. So I was an 11B, grunt, paratrooper, and a Pathfinder platoon of all things. Ended up going TDY with some combat controllers. The reason I wrote this book, you know, 30 plus years later is no one, still no people know about combat control. The deadliest individuals to walk a battlefield in the history of human warfare ever. And John Chapman was one of them. And in March of, you know, 2002, in knee deep snow, they were under fire from three directions. So John Chapman charged ahead of all the seals. It was the first guy into this bunker, which was the most immediate threat. He killed these guys at point-blank range. When I say point-blank, I mean 10 feet. Ultimately, he had 16 gunshot and penetrating wounds in his body. I can't say what he thought, but I can say what he decided. He fought against these guys. Two dozen hardened Chechen and Uzbek fighters. Single-handedly held them off which is what the SEALs all said. We would all be dead had it not been for John. Welcome to Vet Story. I'm your host, Navy veteran Phil Briggs. And as you heard in the intro, today's podcast is going to raise your blood pressure. We're going to learn about one of the rarest, most elite jobs in the military. And what may come as a surprise is that many of these warfighters are in the Air Force. And it's a look at the gritty, dramatic, and kick-ass story of Air Force Medal of Honor recipient Tech Sergeant John Chapman. Recently, I had the honor of talking to a combat and clandestine operations veteran who served as one of the Air Force's elite combat controllers. And he spent years doing research on Tech Sergeant Chapman for the upcoming book, Alone at Dawn. So uh, my name's Dan Schilling, and I'm an author who lives in Alta, Utah. And uh, I'm, a, you know, I, I retired after 31 years in the military, doing special ops. Dan, I'm going to say that intro was a little humble. It was just a little humble, more than just a guy who lives in Utah that writes books. <laughs> well, thanks. Welcome to Vet Story Podcast. Well, Phil, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here and uh, and talk about a, a broader range, of, a broad array of subjects. Uh, so. Uh, you know, hit me with what you're most interested in, and we can start there. All right, let's jump in. I'm going to read a little bit from your bio, because before we get into the book Alone at Dawn, story about John Chapman, and we unpack all that drama, um, mm-hmm. I just wanted to share a little bit with this bio, because this literally, I could read the bio right here and just want to read a book on you. But uh, Dan, it says that you spent 30 years in the military, primarily as a combat controller and a special tactics officer, though he probably started his career as an infantry grunt. So on behalf of a guy that was former enlisted myself, thank you very much for sharing that part of the bio. Um, Numerous combat and clandestine deployments have taken him around the world, including Operation Gothic Serpent, popularly known as Black Hawk Down from the movie and the book bearing the same name. 
where he's credited with saving the lives of a ranger and a SEAL Team 6 member while under fire. Founded and then served as the first commander of two special operations squadrons, one of which his name and purpose still remains classified. His final military assignment was uh, JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command, Weapons of Mass Destruction, U.S. Interagency, Intelligence Community Director, and uh, military certifications include uh, Halo and Static Line Master Parachutist, Special Forces Combat Diver, and Demolition Instructor. I don't even know how you had time to fit this all into your life, and you're still a relatively young guy, but uh, it's an honor to talk to you about this. Uh, let's share with me real quick, what made you get into the military, and what was your original background? So, I mean, uh, I was born in Newport Beach, California, uh, and grew up on the beach until as a young, really young guy. And then I moved to Utah uh, before high school, and this is where I grew up. So I, I'm, I've always had a love affair with the mountains and the desert, and, and uh, you know, this, this became, you know, the center of my universe. Like a lot of people, you know, really feel like you fit in when you're a young person, and I think I was one of those folks. And I, I really ended up joining the military because it a chick reached into my chest and pulled my heart out and crushed it. And I was looking for something new to do with his life. And it was just this weird serendipitous alignment of timing and, you know, whatever misfortune or drama. And uh, right. I found that the military was a really great place. Uh, surprisingly, I think to most civilians uh, in this era of very few people serving in the military that you could really express and find yourself and all things were level. It all came down it's a meritocracy. It's your ability to perform and advance is based on what you invest in it. And I found that really appealing in addition to inside, especially in special ops, since I found my way there, a healthy disrespect for authority is resident in special ops. <laughs> and that was really appealing to me, man. That's the only reason I could stay in the military for 31 years. That's awesome. What was your initial MOS and then what did you go into? So I was an 11B, grunt, paratrooper, in a Pathfinder platoon of all things. And, um, you know, humping a ruck in a 60 was what sort of everybody did. But I ended up going TDY with some combat controllers. And I'd never even heard of combat control, which is the reason I wrote this book, you know, 30 plus years later is no one, still no people know about combat control. But back to the story, I... Uh, these guys jumped Halo, and I didn't even know you could do that. It really, as a grunt, I wasn't in the 80s. You know, it wasn't a lot of people doing that kind of stuff. And they were divers, and they got pro-pay. And I said, well, what's pro-pay? And this combat controller, I never forget it, said, oh, it's cool guy pay. I said, okay, I'm in. I want cool guy pay. <laughs> and uh, not only to find out, I ended up getting out of the Army and then joining the Air Force for the first time because I was in the Army and the Air Force both each twice and in, in my career. And... Uh, you know, only to find out that, you know, the pipeline and combat control turned out to be the most arduous journey of my professional career because my class for indoctrination started with 150 plus guys. And by the time I graduated a year plus later, there was six guys from my original cohort. That's it. And uh, that's a really heavy attrition rate. And people just didn't know that the Air Force had anything like that. And they still don't. Yeah, that's one of the things that I was most taken with when I just read through that bio. Because, I mean, I look at things through my own lens, and I'm a former Navy guy. And, mm -hmm. you know, forever, it was like I always had, like, well, at least a Coast Guard and the Air Force I could kind of joke on because I, at least I felt tougher, <laughs> you know, than those two branches, considering I couldn't hold a candle to, like, what some of the Marines were talking about and certainly even 11 Bravos in the Army from the lowest to the top. I mean, like, you know, they're kicking indoors. They're doing real military stuff. And then they always looked at me as the cameraman on the ship is like, well, what good are you? And I was like, well, I'm, you know, I'm not in the Air Force. Eh. 
Yeah, we tease exactly each other. Right. You know, we tease each other. Uh, you know about the good steaks and the good living and the good dining facilities and Air Force bases. But yeah, combat controller to this day they're still used as part of special operations teams, right? So I mean, combat control. Here's the thing, and it's 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 the subtitle of the book, um, of course, that's coming out in June. But it turns out, in fact, the deadliest individuals to walk a battlefield in the history of human warfare ever. Period are Air Force combat controllers. They hold the power over more life and death by the application of precision firepower. It doesn't matter if it's indirect artillery, Navy gunfire, which I have a friend who called in hostile Navy gunfire off of a African coast, believe it, that that, and primarily through air power, combat controllers, you know, they, they kill people by the score in a battle, unlike the combatants they're working with, whether it's a Green Beret or a SEAL, who can connect kinetically with a bad guy. You're not going to kill that many guys with a gun. Trust me, it's hard to kill people with a gun. But when you have the ability to call in airstrikes within 30 feet of your position, which we have numerous stories throughout this longest-running war in American history of combat controllers doing that type of air power application, they literally control more lives on a battlefield than anybody. It's amazing, too, that they have the, or rather have had the technology, whether it was back decades ago or even now, you know, where things are relatively state of the art. But somehow through all those eras have been able to communicate up to the sky, up to the, you know, wherever they are, the E2C Hawkeyes or whatever planes that are above and, 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 and relay that information almost real time to get the reaction that will, you know, stop and suppress the enemy fire. Um, amazing, amazing career, amazing job. And uh, just really wanted to dive into that with you before we get to the book. Uh, on that note, here's, so here's what's interesting. You know, on, on a battlefield, when you're talking of within the special ops community, whether it's white special ops, which is, you know, regular Green Berets and, and SEALs and whatnot, or black special ops, which are, you know, Stealth of Force and SEAL Team 6, two names we would never have mentioned 20, 30 years ago when I first got into this. But the names are ubiquitous. Everybody knows about them. And, and what, you know, everybody can shoot and move and dive. Uh, most communities can, not all Green Berets, but, um, you know, and, and swim and do all these things that are, we, the average citizen associates with special ops and combat controllers do too, just like everybody else in the special ops community. Here's the difference. And it is the differentiation that separates them from all others. And it's what makes them the deadliest guys on a battlefield. They operate think and plan in four dimensions. Everybody else on the battlefield, even in the gunfight, they think two-dimensionally. Left, right, far, near, and you're shooting your guy and you connect a point from your gun to the bad guy. And that's how they think. Combat controllers think in four dimensions. They use the volume of the environment above their head and the dimension of time to choreograph air power to deliver this precision advantage that America enjoys over any other country in the world, the mightiest air force and air power in the world in history. And they are the guys who wield it. And nobody, other people can call in airstrikes, but nobody can orchestrate it like a symphony in the manner that a combat controller can. Nobody ever. That's what differentiates them from everyone else. Wow. Using the word symphony really kind of brings it together. That's a great, that's a great way to describe that. And 
You know, also with some of the clandestine things I see, um, they can be used in that capacity as well, where they're not necessarily in a firefighter, they're not engaged in the combat scenario, but I can only imagine somebody with that kind of depth of knowledge and that sort of reaction, how critical they could be to, you know, the human intelligence gathering or to like doing things, you know, beyond where we're officially supposed to be or where we're not known to be. Just true, incredible assets to both regular DOD and, you know, to the Pentagon. Amazing. And that's true. That's a very true statement. And, you know, that's not the kind of thing, you know, most of my career, I don't really talk about my own career too much because a lot of it's classified. But aside from those things that you're just alluding to, the other thing that really differentiates combat control is they are the only special operations force that's dual role deliberately as the world's first of the first responders. So when you have, when Haiti collapsed during the earthquake of 2010, you don't call the SEALs to come in there and help everybody out. It's pointless. That's not what they do. And a combat controller, in fact, combat controller were the first guys on the ground in Haiti, and they opened up the airfield in 30, 28 minutes, actually. We advertised that we can open up an international airport that's been devastated in 30 minutes, which when you look at an international runway, it's two miles long, 10,000 feet, and you have to clear that and have it organized. And anyway, we... A guy named Tony Travis was the leader of this campaign, and a handful of combat controllers with a couple of four-wheelers, you know, just little ATVs, established the airfield and brought in all the relief to Haiti. In fact, he had a letter from the president of uh, Haiti giving him sovereignty over all Haitian airspace. This enlisted guy, and for his efforts in leading this, he was uh, one of Time's 100 Most Influential People of the Year for 2010, a first for any enlisted member of the military. But this is what differentiates them. Fukushima and, and during the earthquake and the uh, Banda Aceh Boxing Day, you know, Christmas tsunami that killed thousands of people in 2004. I'm sorry, I might, it might be 2005. Uh, combat controllers are the first guys there to open up these disasters to the world's first responders. So they get there first, which is why their motto is first there. And when you talk to a lot of combat controllers, that's an inherently, that's a deeply satisfying thing to be able to go out and save and help people uh, as opposed to just killing bad guys, which is, it's not good for your soul to kill people. doesn't matter how right it is to do it. It's, it's a hard thing to live with. And so to be able to balance that and be this, Unique force in all special ops that does this type of work in addition to hunting down the worst of the bad guys in the world, it's, uh, it can be really satisfying. It was for me, anyway. Yeah, man. Now, it's interesting to note that uh, we are talking about Air Force Combat Controller more often this last year. Through the story of the heroism and just complete badassery of one Tech Sergeant John Chapman. So talk to me about this story and really what inspired you to write the book. Yep, absolutely. It's the first Air Force Medal of Honor in uh, just about half a century. It's been 47 years. And that's, um, you know, part of that's cultural. You know, it's like we were joking earlier in our interview about uh, the Air Force, you know, and that, you know, low threat, high per diem. And, you know, where's my air conditioning? But, uh, but part of that's cultural. The Air Force has always historically done that to itself by having this low profile. And that's a mistake because turns out, as we've been discussing, the deadliest guys in the history of yeah. human warfare ever are actually Air Force members. And so um, it's a it's a you know, it's a it's a different sort of dynamic. 
that brings us to the book, and that's really what I'm eager to dive into. Uh, the book is going to be coming out, and it's called Alone at Dawn, and it's a story of John Chapman. And I don't want to give too much away because I want to ask you to kind of give me the, you know, the outline. But uh, what I know of John Chapman's heroics was that it was a mountaintop snow-covered mountaintop in Afghanistan. It was special operations mission, um, SEALs, and they were delivered there to the mountaintop, and uh, stuff got bad. And as they were withdrawn from the engagement with the Taliban, I believe, um, John Chapman was the last guy standing and literally didn't make the extraction and fought to his last breath an enemy that was closing in on him. Yeah, that's a a pretty good parrot paraphrase or, or, or summary, uh, it's, it's uh, how it really unfolds is a, is a little bit different than that. Of course, it's in the book and people should buy many copies of this book. But he, you know, the, the, the mountain, the, there's a lot of background into why it was a SEAL Team 6 uh, led mission on this particular summit where they were going. The overall operation to support, the, the special operations support to Operation Anaconda, which was the larger operation going on, which was a conventional operation, was actually run by the, the special operations component was run by Delta Force, a guy named Pete Blaber. And, but he had SEAL Team 6 SEALs and he had Delta Force guys and he had key, uh, a handful of combat controllers and John Chapman was one of them and he was assigned to a handful of SEALs. Now they ended up on top of a mountain based on some, uh, what I would call uh, poor assessment and execution by certain leaders but the guys are on the mountain now and they are outnumbered by a few dozen to six at this point because they had already lost one seal and when they came back to this mountain summit in march of you know 2002 at 10,600 feet in knee-deep snow um, they were under fire from three directions, and John Chapman charged ahead of all the SEALs. It was the first guy into this bunker, which was the most immediate threat, and he killed these guys at point-blank range. When I say point-blank, I mean 10 feet, and thus saved all the SEALs' lives, which is what the SEALs all said, and we would all be dead had it not been for John. And that fact actually earned him, was qualified for his first Medal of Honor. But in the course of doing that, he got shot. Uh, none of the guys had body armor on because they were originally going in for a reconnaissance mission and that's just extra weight. And so he, John went down and the SEALs under a heavy fire uh, made the decision to retreat, which was a tactical decision. No one's faulting the team leader, a guy named Slab. And they left John for dead because they thought he was, but he wasn't. And now John recovered. We don't really know what happened to him other than he got shot those couple of times. But he then fought for over an hour, about an hour and maybe six minutes or so, by himself against two dozen hardened Chechen and Uzbek fighters. These are all things that we know for a fact. These weren't just mountain boy Taliban converts. These were hardened guys who came there to bring it to the Americans. And John now fought alone in this bunker withstood uh, hand-to-hand combat. We know this for a fact too, because in his, in the forensic pathology as part of his autopsy, he anti-mortem, while he was still alive, he has hand-to-hand fighting, you know, contusions on his face, neck, nose, scalp, hands. So, and we can see it on the CIA Predator drone footage of which I used to reconstruct uh, in my own research for the book. But he fought against these guys who kept trying to displace him 
for over an hour and single-handedly held him off, having already been shot several mm. times. It's an astounding feat. But what really sets John's heroics to get to the climax of the story is uh, a, a quick reaction force helicopter coming in with a rescue force full of rangers, a couple of pararescuemen, and another combat controller named Gabe Brown were called in to rescue the seals. No one knew John was on the mountain. And as the helicopters laboring up, the big you know, MH-47 dual rotor helicopters laboring up to 10,000 feet to deliver these guys, and it's gonna be the third helicopter to be shot down in this spot. John Chapman alone in this bunker realized what was about to happen. I, mean, I can't say what he thought, but I can say what he decided. And he clearly made the decision to climb out of this bunker and defend this helicopter because the, 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 the Al-Qaeda guys on the mountain were trying to displace him so they could move a heavy Gishka machine gun down into the bunker he was occupying to get a clear shot at the helicopter. And he chose to sacrifice his life to save the lives of this further 18 men who he didn't even know at the cost of his own life. And he literally got shot to pieces and died on the mountain rescuing another 18 guys, ultimately saving 23 men. And that's John's story. And the book is about John and John's own personal evolution. And as it parallels uh, the evolution of combat control to become really this force to be reckoned with that people didn't either understand or were aware of uh, so many years before. Mm, what an amazing story. And, you know, I've previously covered, in fact, I spoke with Jack Murphy um, last year uh, in a story we did called Life, Death, and Medals of Honor uh, about this exact incident and it was a little twist off of it because as the medal of honor packages were designed you know there was a little bit of a controversy between whether or not the u.s navy seal a package and um senior chief brett slabinski uh you know should rightfully be awarded the medal of honor when in fact it should have gone to air force tech sergeant john chapman uh, almost alone because of his heroics you just described but as you wrote this book from John's perspective, or as you kind of got into John's head, was he under any illusion that that helicopter was there to rescue him? Or did you think he went in knowing full well that this was his last stand and that he was going to do everything to save his brothers? I can't say if he knew the helicopter or if he thought it was coming for him. He kept try He kept calling out from this was part of there was some controversy. And I don't really bog down on that in the book because that's not what my book is about. No, my right, book's right, not right. about controversy. My book's about these guys. And John called out because he was calling on the radio to another teammate of his who was with Delta Force, but it was a, uh, another combat controller named Jay Hill. And Jay heard him at least a dozen times on the radio calling out. But for whatever reason, we also don't know why John didn't either respond back or could hear Jay, and we'll never know. And that goes back to your question. Whether John knew that they were coming for him or believed or hoped they were coming for him, he clearly recognized that if he didn't do what he did, because he was there for the first two helicopter shoot downs because he was on those helicopters. Yeah, yeah. He, he, he clearly recognized that if he didn't do this, it was going to be catastrophic. And ultimately that third helicopter did get shot down as it was hovering, but it, it, it controlled crashed amazing piloting skills by the, the 160th uh, SOAR guys who, who flew that helicopter. But John, man, he, he had to know he was going to give up his life. Now, he was already mortally wounded. He was dying already. He was mortally 
uh, his internal bleeding was, he was going to bleed out and die, even if he didn't climb out of this bunker. And I don't know whether he knew that or not either, but he was in severe shock and heavily damaged. Ultimately, he had 16 gunshot and penetrating wounds in his body, and he was still functioning up until the last two rounds that took his life. That 14 rounds and shrapnel in your body is an inconceivable amount of physiological and psychological damage to a human alone on a mountain. So John's heroism. And when I wrote this book, I spent, you know, I knew John actually, uh, not well because I was ahead of him in my career, but as I was writing and researching this book, which took me two years, I really struggled. I had days where I would just leave my house trying when I was going through what John went through and spent about a week writing these last moments of his life, uh, I, I was devastated, man. I, I would become an emotional wreck over this because I, I, I've been in gunfights and, you know, I've had my life saved by other people and I've saved the lives of other teammates in combat and it's nothing. I mean, and I'm talking about Black Hawk Down. Like everybody knows the gunfight, yeah. one of the gunfights I was in as, as one of the, the most extreme examples of a gunfight we've got. But I'll tell you, what he went through, uh, what my experiences pale in comparison to what John Chapman had the courage to do on that mountain alone in shock and already dying. It's unbelievable. Unbelievable. I know as an artist, you know, as a, as a writer, even as a journalist, I mean, you can't help but connect emotionally when you start getting involved in a topic and you start writing on it. And, and at the depths you explore it as a writer, uh, you know, you were just fully in this for days and weeks at a time. So it, it doesn't surprise me, you know, that your eyes water, you well up, you got to take a break from the computer because you're so into the moment and you've been in those moments. I want to say that, you know, on behalf of all the people that will read this book when it comes out, um, thank you for taking the time to go through one of the darkest days of the special operations communities and bring out the light of a heroic story because I know that for everybody out there who's uh, achieved something like this who's made that ultimate sacrifice um, their light shone brightest in the days that they're gone uh, you know what they've their example serves as an inspiration for all of us and I'm just really glad that you were able to uh, craft this in the book again the name of the book and when it comes out the name of the book is Alone at Dawn it'll be available on uh, June 25th uh, retailers anywhere. If you go to my website, it's Dan Schilling dot uh, And it's uh, my last name is spelled S C H I L L I N G, just like Kurt Schilling. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can pick up information there. You can also read uh, about my background, but my website's really focused on John. And uh, if you're uh, readers who would like to sign copy, I will be on book tour. I'll be at Bragg and, and also down at, in Fort Walton beach and, and DC area. Uh, in addition to a lot of states out west, but uh, people who would like a signed copy, they can order it through the website and the local bookstore will actually ensure that I've signed the book before it gets shipped out on right on June 25th. And I'm happy to sign any book for anyone who's interested in our story. Well, I can guarantee you that I definitely want one on my bookshelf. Amazing story, man. Thank you so much for crafting it. Can I ask, is this getting or have you had interest of this becoming a movie because i mean this is this literally sounds like one of the most thrilling war stories you could ever put into you know the big screen well it's funny you should mention that because uh you know non-fiction books like this you actually sell a proposal i wrote a proposal uh, for you know seven months and you sell a proposal and then you go off and write the book uh, the movie rights to the book went immediately after 
uh, sold the book to our publisher, and uh, I'm happy to announce that the screenplay is uh, in draft right now, which is light warp speed for Hollywood. Um, I mean, the fact that these guys recognize the power of this story when it was just a proposal and bought the rights before anybody else in Hollywood could and have already commissioned a, a professional screenwriter who's got a lot of juice in Hollywood. Uh, the movie will be in motion. Uh, I have no control over the movie, uh, obviously. I have helped them with some stuff, but uh, that it's, it's definitely going to happen. So, and it went fast. It was amazing. Mm. I can't wait to see it. I can't wait to read it. And again, the book is Alone at Dawn, the story of Medal of Honor recipient Air Force Combat Controller John Chapman and a fight that you have to read to believe on a snow-covered mountaintop in Afghanistan. Um, Dan Schilling, thank you so much, man. Hey, listen, Phil, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate the interest. And uh, people can learn more at my website, but uh, if they just Google Alone at Dawn, uh, they'll, they'll end up in the right space. And uh, it is... It is one of the most compelling stories you will read about combat sacrifice and uh, and commitment to brotherhood, and that's not a cliche. And uh, but also as a as an added hook, you're going to learn about these people you had no idea even existed because we have combat control has always existed in the scenes, and uh, people are just unaware that the deadliest guys to ever walk a battlefield are in the Air Force. Yeah, no doubt. In fact, this Navy veteran here will no longer be making Air Force jokes just because <laughs> of this interview. I thank you so much. Dan, you kick ass, man. Really appreciate you. No, hey, thanks so much, Phil, and uh, look forward to talking again sometime.